So recently I was introduced to a short story by the 20th century Southern writer Flannery O'Connor, and it's a story called Revelation. And I've read a little bit of her stuff before, but I'd never heard of this story, I'd never read it. So I spent some time with it near the beginning of this week. And O'Connor, she published this story in 1964, and in it she tells the story of Ruby Turpin, who's an upper middle class, white, church-going Southern woman, and her husband Claude, who are at a small town doctor's office. They're in the waiting room. Um, and it's a, a waiting room about the size of a garage. And they're there for uh, Claude to see the doctor. He'd gotten kicked by a cow um, on their farm. And the small waiting room is, is filled with all kinds of different people. People from different classes, people from different races, people uh, with different body types, people with different dispositions. And O'Connor, in this story, she brings you into the mind of Mrs. Turpin, who's busy the whole time they're there, judging and categorizing everyone who's sitting there with them. And most of this is done internally in her mind, but eventually her, her condescending judgmental spirit comes out when she says this at one point in the group. She says, quote, when I think of Think who all I could have been besides myself and what I got. I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. And when this happens, there's an 18-year-old girl there named Mary Grace who functions as a prophet of sorts in this story. And she's kind of sensed this condescending spirit from Mrs. Turpin the whole time. She's felt it. But then when she hears this, she can't take it anymore. And so she, she's reading a book and she takes the book and she throws it at her. And then she jumps out of her seat and begins to start trying to choke her. And it's a crazy scene. And now she's quickly restrained. The, the struggle has ended and Mrs. Turpin isn't injured too badly, but it leads her to do some serious soul searching as they leave the doctor's office and go back home. And the story ends with Mrs. Turpin out in the field wrestling with God, wrestling with how she, as this uh, good woman in her eyes, could be attacked like this, how something like this could happen to her, how someone could see her this way. And she finally cries out to God and she says, God, who do you think you are? And immediately it all ends with this vision she has, a vision of a line of people entering into heaven. And to Mrs. Turpin's great surprise, who she sees at the front of the line are not, not the people she would think, but all the people she's spent her whole life judging and categorizing and putting herself above. It, it's a powerful and piercing story. And, and what it gets at is the, the scandalous grace that's, that's at the heart of Christianity. The staggering truth that God doesn't categorize the way we do. That God doesn't think about unrighteousness and righteousness like we do, that when he looks at us, God has a, an entirely different way of accounting things. And, and that's also what our passage today is about. This story we're looking at, where Jesus comes to Levi, who's known to be the apostle Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew, and he calls him a tax collector of all people, as we'll talk about, a sinner of all sinners in this culture. And he doesn't just call him to follow him, he calls him to be part of his core ministry team. It's a story that similar, similarly pierces us in the way you and I naturally see other people and the way we naturally think God sees us. And, and what I love about it is it functions as a sort of gospel orientation story or sort of gospel reorientation story because what we find here is, is so important for us to, to get the gospel, to really understand it and be changed by it. 
And so what we're going to focus on as we look at this is the scandal of grace, the scandalous grace of the king and his kingdom. And and a really simple outline today, just two points. We're going to look, number one, at the scandal of grace. So, So what is this scandal? And then number two, and we'll spend most of our time there, And then second, we'll finish by looking at uh, being scandalized by grace. So what happens when you get this scandal, when it does uh, come into your life and change you? And so first, let's look at the scandal of grace. So to understand the the scandal in the story, first we need to understand who Levi is. Who is this man that Jesus is calling? And to understand who he is, first we need to understand his occupation. His occupation as a tax collector. But what did that mean? What, What... what did that mean in this context of the first century? Well, as a tax collector, whether directly or indirectly, Levi worked for the Roman Empire. So at the time, the, the Romans levied heavy and oppressive taxes against the Jewish people. And of course, tax collectors were the ones who collected these. And so having his booth set up here by the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, Levi was likely collecting tax on fish and other items moving between Syria and Egypt. And this was a very lucrative job. Because once you met your quota for Rome, everything else you collected was yours to keep. So a lot of people wanted this job. It was at least people who, who cared about uh, doing well financially. There was a, a lot of competition to get these jobs. However, the problem was it came at a, a big cost to you socially. So as a Jewish person working for Rome, you were hated by your peers. You were lumped together and thought of along with thieves and murderers. You were disqualified from being a witness in court. You were kicked out of the synagogue. You were disgraced to your family. Like the leper we looked at a few weeks ago, you were considered to be unclean if people were around you. And on top of all that, like the worst part was everybody saw you as a traitor, as a sellout. Uh, I asked Sarah this week as I was putting together the sermon, can you think of a good illustration or a, a good example of a traitor? And uh, right as I was asking that question in to the room walks our cat. And she says, him. <laughs> so I literally just texted my mom, Petey has, our cat Petey has no loyalty because what he does is he, he constantly, when he's inside, he attacks us. He jumps off the furniture and attacks the kids. But when he's outside and somebody walks by on the sidewalk, he just strolls up, he purrs, he lets them pet them. He's kind of like developed a reputation in our neighborhood. Multiple families have told us they come by our house intentionally so that their kids can pet Petey. And this happened the other night. We're eating dinner on the front porch, and this woman waved at us and looked like she was going to come up and say hello. I was like, oh, that's so nice. But no, Petey comes out, and she just came to pet him. So and maybe that's just like expected for a cat, right? Par for the course, and it's even kind of fun and, and entertaining for us to watch. But not, not for us, right? Not when we do this to each other. And so in this context, Levi doing this, being a traitor, he was despised by his people. And then it's not just though his occupation that we need to understand to get who he is and the magnitude of this calling. We also need to understand a little bit about his story. And that's where we have to use our imaginations a little and draw from the greater gospel story. As I mentioned, this, this Levi here, this is the apostle Matthew. And one of the ways we know that is when Matthew gives us this account in his gospel, here's what he says at the beginning, Matthew 9, 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And then he goes on to tell the exact same story that we're reading here. And it's not uncommon for people in the New Testament to go by multiple names. You can think about Peter, 
who goes by Simon, Cephas, of course, Peter. And so this Levi here is, is Matthew. And, and what do we know about Matthew? Well, not too much other than this story of his calling and his general experience as a disciple. But if we look at him as the author of the gospel of Matthew, there's a, a, a couple of things we can pick up. Uh, number one, that Matthew was a smart guy. His gospel, if you read it, it focuses much more on Jesus' teaching, on his ideas. So in it, you have the Sermon on the Mount, which we're, we're studying in our women's Bible study right now. You have uh, length, other lengthy parables and long teaching section. There's so much more teaching than, say, in Mark's gospel, where there's so much focus uh, on action. And so it seems that Matthew is like an ideas person, that he enjoyed and, and had the uh, ability to understand and articulate ideas well. And then number two, we can pick up from it that Matthew knew the Old Testament. He knew the Hebrew Scriptures I mean, it really well. You can read any introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, and scholars will talk about how Matthew's unique among the gospel writers in the way that he so diligently and carefully shows over and over how Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament figures and, and themes. You can even think about him beginning with the genealogy of Jesus, showing uh, his connection all the way back to Abraham. So again, it's a little speculative. We don't know for sure, but you almost get the picture Matthew was this sort of promising young student of the Hebrew scriptures who for some reason or another walked away from his faith and community to pursue a life of financial success as a tax collector. So not only is Levi, Matthew, someone people, not only is he doing this hated job, but he's someone people knew. He's someone from the community who grew up with everyone else in the synagogue and the, the traditions, but who's left it behind for his own personal gain. And so if you're just thinking in terms of common wisdom, like Mrs. Turpin in the story, like you and I so often do, this is the last person you would think Jesus would call, right? especially to be in his inner ring. The last person you think God would call. But when God does show up here in the person of Jesus, this is exactly who he calls. Look again at the beginning of our story. It tells us that Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. So there's this whole crowd. But as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Jesus calls one of the worst, most undeserving sinners he could possibly call. And not only does he call him to follow him, he goes and throws a party in his house with a bunch of other people who were just like him. Verse 15 tells us that as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And you may know this, you may have heard this before, but uh, meals in this context were a bigger deal than they are today. Um, it's still an intimate thing to do, inviting someone in your home to eat with you. It, it communicates acceptance, it communicates appreciation, like, I want to know you, I want to invite you into my life. Um, several years ago, uh, before our life was completely out of control with three kids, four and under, we, Sarah and I were doing this thing where every Friday night we try to invite uh, someone or a couple into our home, and uh, maybe we'll do it again someday. But we were, we, were really <laughs> we were really intentional about who we invited, and it wasn't because we were trying to be exclusive or anything like that, but we were trying to pay attention to and sense, like, who has God put in our life that uh, he wants us to get to know more? 
And so we'd invite these people over, and what we wanted to do was say, hey, we want, we want to get to know you, and, and we want you to get to know us. We want to invite you into our life. And so meals, they're still very significant today, but listen to what one New Testament scholar says about what meals meant in this context in the first century. He says this, he says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony of richly symbolic friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So what we're seeing here in this story is such a scandal. It's hard to put it into words. The Son of God comes and he eats with literally some of the worst enemies of the people of God at the time. He has a dinner party with them. He invites them into to friendship, into acceptance, into unity, reconciliation. And get this, here's the craziest part. Before they change their lives, right? Before they, they do that much that's different, like he comes and he eats with them where they are, as they are. It's such a scandal all the way around. But what's even more scandalous is, is what Jesus does next. Because Mark tells us that scribes of the Pharisees are, are here. Or they're at, least, they're at least somewhere where they can take in what's happening, where they can see what's going on and see Jesus eating with this group of people. And, and these are pe- people who are very different from Levi. These are, the, these are the people who didn't abandon their faith and their community. They're the people who did the responsible thing the right thing, who've made their family proud, who've made their community proud. And so as they see this, they cannot believe what they're seeing. They, they maybe don't know what to make yet of Jesus, but they're like, why is this holy man, what is he doing eating with these people? Right? They can't help but ask the disciples, what's going on? Verse 16 tells us the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat? with tax collectors and sinners? Good question. But before they have a chance to respond, Jesus overhears this, and he responds this way in verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's such a Jesus sort of line. And and with it, Jesus is explaining the most scandalous part of the gospel and the most scandalous part of grace that he only came for one category of people, those who are sick and who know it. And what he's doing with this line is he's trying to help the Pharisees and he's trying to help us see that we're all in this category. That's the point of what he says. It's almost like he's saying, yes, these people are obviously sick, They're lost. They're living lives they shouldn't live. They're doing things they shouldn't do. But what does it say about you that when you see me come to these people, you respond the way you do? You don't respond with joy, with celebration that I've come to them, but you respond with with condemnation, with judgment, with self-righteousness. The scandal of all scandals about the gospel of grace is it says you and I, we're all sick. That in our own way, 
we're all notorious sinners, right? There's only one category and, and we're all in it. But that's not all it says. It doesn't only say that we're all in this bad situation. It also says we can all be healed. We can all be made well. And I love the way the Apostle Paul summarizes this in Romans 3 when he says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, this is, what, this is what Ruby Turpin discovered in this vision she had. That there's no distinction. It doesn't ultimately matter what it looks like on the outside from our perspective because on the inside, we've all got the same problem. We're all sinners. I think I'm better, but I'm just like them, maybe even worse. No one is righteous. No, not one, including me. And we all need the same thing. We're all desperate for grace. And the good news of the gospel is that's what God offers us. In Jesus Christ, in our great physician, the one who came to call sinners, the one who came to give us grace. And and how did he do that? Well, as the only truly healthy and whole one, Jesus came to be sick. He came to be splintered apart. Jesus is the only truly righteous one, and he came to be unrighteous. So you and I, so we could be made righteous, healthy, and whole again. That's what he came to do, and that's what he did on the cross. The great exchange where he took our sickness and our unrighteousness on himself so that when we trust him by grace, he can give us his healthiness, right? his righteousness. It's a scandal. Do you see it? Do you feel it? And the question for you and me to ask ourselves this morning is, have I been scandalized by this? Have I been scandalized by the grace I I see in this story that's at the heart of the Christian faith? Have I grappled with it? Have I really understood it? Because the the truth is, you can do a lot of Christian things. You can do a lot of church things. But until you are confronted by grace like this, it's not really going to do anything in your life. I mean, I was in Christian environments for several years hearing about Jesus before uh, I was really confronted with grace like this. And before this happened, I I kind of liked hearing about Jesus, but I I really thought in my heart, at the end of the day, I'm just a good guy trying to do my best. Yeah, I need Jesus to help me sometimes, but that's that's really what's true. But when the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and I was truly confronted with grace, I realized that's not true at all. Like I realized I'm sick. Like, I'm such a big sinner. And on my own, apart from God's grace, like, I don't have any hope. That's the only way I can be healed. And that's that's when things really started to change for me. But it's not like, hey, I figured it out back then, and now it's, like, just been this story of victory ever since then. No, like, I've got to stay in tune with this grace all the time, or I drift into this Mrs. Turpin way of living, this Pharisee way of living and and thinking where I'm, I'm... condemning people in my heart, where I'm judging them, where I'm putting myself uh, above others. And and so this passage has been a a helpful invitation, painful invitation for me this week to pay closer attention to this in my own heart and and see how often I do this. And and when I do it, uh, to repent and ask Jesus to help me, like remind me what's true. 
helped me see myself the way Paul did, probably the, the holiest person who ever lived, how when he grew and matured, instead of seeing himself as a spiritual hero, right, he, he saw himself more and more as he went on as a, a sinner in need of grace. And that's why he said famously in 1 Timothy 1.15 that saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. This is later in his life. Right? It's not like, thank you, Jesus, that you came to save all these other sinners. First and foremost, he's like, thank you that you came to save me, sinner that I am. And the point is, when Jesus calls you now to follow him like he does here with Levi, this is the journey he's calling us on, this lifelong journey of, of falling, of getting low, of descending into his grace and his love for us. It's, it's such a scandal and so briefly, let's end just for a few minutes by talking about what it looks like to do this. What it looks like when you are scandalized by grace, when you do follow Jesus on this, this downward path, what does it look like? Well, two ways it shows up I want to mention. Number one, it means we drop our categorizing. We drop our categorizing. We stop categorizing people, judging people, condemning people the way we do, whether it is just internally and nobody else ever finds out about it, or whether it's we're actually doing it outwardly. And, and realistically, we're not going to stop completely, right? It's such a big struggle. But when, when the grace of God comes into your life, you begin to move away from this. It does become less and less of who you are and, and, and what you do. And, and why? Well, I, I like what one of my favorite hip-hop artists, Taylor Gray, says in his song, Put, you, Put Me Back Together. He says, I used to tell you about your sin, until I learn to face mine. See, we stop doing this because we become more focused, more aware of our own sin. And so whoever the, the tax collectors and sinners are for us in our life, whoever's sins, we, when we see them, seem the most heinous to us, which, by the way, they're normally sins we don't struggle with, right? That's why we categorize them that way. But whoever it is and whatever it looks like, we stop being so worried about them and what they're doing because we're more concerned with with, with how we want God to change us. With, with, the own, with our own sin and our own struggle we see uh, in our own heart. That's what we're more concerned about. And so when this happens, we stop categorizing people. But then second, it's not just that we stop categorizing people, but positively, we start to love them. And that's what you see with Jesus. I mean, Jesus is drawn to Levi. You see this all over the Gospels. He's like a, he's like a magnet for sinners, because he loves them, and they can feel it. He doesn't love their sin, but he loves them. And when you and I, when we've been pursued by Jesus, in a sense, when he's come to eat with us in the middle of our sin, before we've cleaned ourselves up, and we've felt that, we've experienced it, we start to become like him. And so part of what that means is we're not repelled by sin. I was thinking about the first Iron Man movie, if you've seen that where he gets like trapped in the cave and he's, you know, he's working on building this suit, the, the first Iron Man suit, and he eventually gets it built and he comes out for the first time with it, right? And, and he's indestructible, right? It's not like when you come to Jesus, then you come out of this cave and you've got this sin, sin um, protective suit on, right? No, it's, it's actually the opposite. You come to him and then you, you, you take your armor off, you become vulnerable. You become a wounded healer. You become someone that sinful and broken people are attracted to. 
And so practically, this means if you've tasted the grace of God, if it's changed your life, if it is changing your life, you should have people in your life today who are a mess that you love and they love you and they feel loved by you. Like you shouldn't be repelling people. Like you're, you're afraid to be contaminated by, you know, like secondhand sin. It's <laughs> a good line. I got that from Mark. But then here's the next step of that. It's not just us individually. Like th- that's what the church should look like. That, that's who we should be here as a, a congregation at Hope. We should be a congregation who's filled with people who are sick, who are lost, who are broken. Those kinds of people shouldn't be turned off by us. Again, like Jesus, it's not like we love the sin and we encourage it. No, but we love the people because we, we, we think, man, I know my own heart. I know my own stuff. And if it wasn't for God's grace, like, I don't know where I'd be. I'm not any different when we all boil it down. That's the only difference is God's been gracious to me. So we become this kind of community. As Jesus calls us, as we begin to follow him, as we're scandalized by the grace we see here in this story and in the gospel, we become people who don't say, oh, Jesus, thank you that you made me the way I am. Thank you that you didn't make me like all these other people. No, but we become people who say, Jesus, Thank you that you came to save sinners like me. We become people like, like Levi, and, and ultimately we can become a church who might just be weak enough for God to use us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, the way you love us, and thank you for sending your son. And um, this message that we get to see played out here, even in this uh, brief story of uh, him calling Levi, I pray uh, for myself, that I would believe this, um, Lord, that this scandal would, um, in a sense, re-scandalize me and reorient me to um, the amazing grace that we find in Jesus. And I pray that for all of us, I pray that for us as a church, um, that we would become people um, like Paul, who as we grow um, are more aware of our own need for you and um, more aware of what you've provided for us and how much you love us. Um, we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, let's.